Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. I'm Harry Kemsley, and as usual, my co-conspirator is Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Good to see you, Sean. Thanks for joining us over. And as a slight variation to our normal run of things, I'm pleased to introduce two James analysts and subject matter experts, Christian Hammett and Tom Bullock. Hello, Christian and Tom. Hi, guys. Hey. Good to meet you guys. Thanks for joining. So by way of introduction, Christian. Christian Hammett is a country intelligence analyst at James. He works on Europe and the CIS. Prior to James, Christian built his career researching geopolitics and sociology in the US, Syria and CIS and co-founded a war crimes database using open source intelligence to document, cross-reference and corroborate war crimes in Syria, as well as counter disinformation. Thanks for joining, Christian. Tom Bullock is a senior analyst with Jane's open source intelligence, OSINT force monitoring. He specializes in tracking and monitoring the Russian military using a composite of open source information, such as social media and satellite imagery, alongside Jane's foundational intelligence to create a uniquely powerful insight to what the Russian forces have been building to do in Ukraine, and which he has been doing for James for at least the last three years. Tom joined James in 2018 after graduating with a master's degree in intelligence and security studies from Brunel University. Hello, Tom. Hi. So guys, both of you, thank you for joining. Um, what you may be aware of is that last year, Sean and I ran a series of podcasts where we looked at the the art of open source intelligence, the, the potential for it and how you might exploit it. But it, that was somewhat theoretical, somewhat conceptual and all about really understanding why open source should be part of a multi-source environment for analysts out there in the national security space. What we're doing this year, which brings us to this conversation, is we're spending a lot more time looking at how you actually can, for real, apply open source information and the intelligence insights you can derive from it in a much more real way. We're looking at real case studies. And today, which is why I've asked you both to join, given the situation in the world, we're going to focus on how the real world utility of open source intelligence can be applied to a major strategic security challenge, such as the one we're facing in Ukraine. Now, what I don't want to do today is spend a lot of time talking about specifically what is happening in Ukraine, because that is unusually being covered extremely well from largely open source uh, information across the media. We're getting lots and lots of insights, satellite imagery, lots and lots of uh, news. So we don't need to do that today particularly. What I want to get into is how are those open source intelligence insights being created? And both you, Tom and Christian are at the forefront of that for James. So today I want to spend a lot of time talking about how you have been doing the work that you've been doing. So let's get us started then, uh, and I kind of come to you first, Tom, with a broad understanding about how you have been using open source, publicly available information to get your understanding of the current situation. And then what I might do from there, Christian, is, is go across to you to see how that counterpoints with what you've done in the past, perhaps with a different conflict with Syria, and seeing how we've changed over the recent times. Sean, I'll come to you at the end in terms of some of the lessons we've learned from that, but also things we talked about in the, in the past. So Tom, at last, turning to you, you've been working in the open source environment around monitoring the Russian military and its behaviours. How have you been getting on with that? And how has that helped you understand the situation? Tom? So the bulk of our 
research and our analysis is based off two main source types really within the open source realm and that is social media and satellite imagery normally when we're tracking the russian military for day-to-day -day exercises and things like that we also tend to draw on russian mod sources as well but they kind of take a back seat when the russian military and the ministry of defense are pushing specific information campaigns to say they're doing one thing when all the other evidence suggests they're doing another so we still take them into consideration but general focus is on social media and then attempted to verify that information we've gathered from social media with things like satellite imagery. And that satellite imagery includes high quality, 50 centimeters per pixel commercial imagery, all the way down to free um, 10 meters per pixel SAR imagery or synthetic aperture radar imagery, which allows you to identify activity, but not identify, for example, specific pieces of equipment. And then we use the social media side of that and Jane's fundamental knowledge of equipment and order of battle data for Russia to enhance our understanding there. So instead of just saying there are tanks in this field, for example, using that Jane's knowledge, we can say this tank is this specific variant. It's capable of these things. It's drawn from this unit, which is based in this place, and it is now here in this specific location near the border. Very good. Now, what you described there is a multi-source approach. Um, you've talked about some commercially available content that you have access to because you're a James analyst, but you've also talked about multiple publicly available sources as well. And is it fair to say that that's given you a high degree of confidence in the results and the insights you're drawing from the work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. I think we wouldn't be able to give the same level of confidence if we weren't able to corroborate through things through multiple types of sources and even multiple sources within the same type. So multiple accounts showing the similar activity in the same area, for example, on social media. And Sean, I'll come to you in a minute when we've spoken to Christian about how that starts to stitch together, because as we've said in previous podcasts, that ability to bring together the composite picture is one of the assets of context, if nothing else, that uh, open source can deliver. So Christian, Welcome to against the podcast. Your background, we mentioned in your introduction, includes looking very closely at a different conflict, the Syrian conflict, and you did that at that time some some while ago um, with what was then available to you. Can you just give us an insight to how you approached that? And then at the end of it, we can talk about the confidence you had back then about what you were doing and the results you were driving from that analysis. I mean, it depends on which project I would be focusing on for Syria. So for the war crimes database, I think our approach was literally to take as many sources as we could, uh, mostly from social media, but also from news reports, even from maybe government footage, government owned media sources in Syria or in Russia. We wanted to cross reference all these sources to create uh, a meaningful picture, if possible, of each alleged war crime we encountered and enable us to cut through either misinformation or disinformation and give a label to each potential war crime uh, depending on how credible we thought it, uh, the incident was and what is the scope of the incident how many casualties do we think what was the maximum what was the minimum and um, there was uh, there was no comparable tool to OSINT right. to be able to cut through uh, that misinformation and disinformation or even the lack of information yeah, and I certainly want to come back to that later in terms of what may have changed, because Sean, coming to you now, one of the things you and I have talked about in the recent uh, period of time for our podcasts is how technology has started to unlock the potential. It started to give us access to things that we just didn't have, certainly not 10, 15 years ago, and even to some extent five years ago. It's, it's, it really seems to have changed. 
What are your thoughts, though, about how that greater access, the improved technology has enabled people like Tom and, and uh, Kristen to do what they do? Yeah, obviously a key enabler there. And um, Tom mentioned the, some of the sources there. But if you look at the technological side, particularly on the Earth observation from some pretty sophisticated satellites, you know, if you go back many years, even the exquisite uh, military stuff, you're starting to see that replicated not too far now. There's, there's a couple of elements to that though worth pointing out. And the first one is the proliferation of uh, satellites, for example. Now, what that allows you to do, of course, is revisit, which means that you've got far more persistent view of what's going on rather than waiting for the satellite to come around again every third, fourth or fifth day. So it does allow you to do that change detection. The other thing is um, obviously the sensors. And again, Tom mentioned, you know, synthetic amateur radar, particularly somewhere like the Ukraine, which is generally pretty cloudy. It just allows you to to see in a different way, but actually, you know, penetrate that cloud cover. Um, but going on to social media, I think a really important point is the all pervasive nature of it. Everybody has a mobile phone now. You know, most people have laptops, people take photographs. So it, it is just out there. You know, I talk about everybody now as an intelligence collector. The key with all that, as, as both Tom and, and, and Christian have mentioned, is sifting through that huge amounts of information to come up with the, the gem that adds that value, the so what, but also, and we'll come on to this later um, uh, and talk about the, the disinformation piece or the misinformation or what is it not telling us. Just going back to Tom's initial piece, you know, I used to metaphorically and not so metaphorically shout at the television when I could see these reporters talking about what was happening and what that meant on the ground. Not that many years ago thinking, you are totally wrong. And what's very obvious now is that, you know, the commentary that's coming out um, on the big news media is really well informed. Now, that is partly because of the technology, but partly I think that uh, shouldn't be underestimated the education side. So organisations such as James have now made it obvious about what is available and what you can use. I mean, I saw a uh, I think it was a Sky reporter the other day talking about a key enabler as a field hospital. You'd never have heard that a little while ago. Now, they haven't just plucked that out of the air. They've been told by an expert. And that's my final point at this stage, I think, is the is the art versus the science. I mean, they're too modest to say, for, to say so, but you've got two extremely good analysts here that it's OK to get the best data in the world. But unless you can interpret it in a way that adds that value with the experience that comes with that saying, yeah, OK, that formation is over there, but we might expect it to be over there or that's not right because they don't have the logistics with them or something like that. So you've still got to have that expert in the loop. Yeah, I'm going to move on in a minute to talking about the how you do what you do, Tom and Christian. Before I do that, though, just to step back a second, just to pick up on a point that came out there, I think you talked about the persistence of certain types of open source information and intelligence, like the the satellites that are now giving us revisit rates of hours rather than days or weeks. Tom, what do you, have you utilised that sort of facility open to you that you can actually go back and look over and over again regularly to see a pattern of change? Have you used that in the work that you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the best resources for that is actually a free satellite imagery provider. So Sentinel Hub, which is essentially a, a satellite network that offers low resolution EO and SAR imagery of the world. They update their imagery every two to three days of everywhere on the planet. So if you know, if you have a piece of high res imagery or a lot of social media indicating activity in a certain area, you can use that constant refreshing feed of low res imagery to identify spots of activity and use that for further taskings, whether that's tasking high res imagery or tasking social media collection around that area. And that has actually been one of the crucial parts of building this picture is because 
we see equipment coming off trains at railway stations in villages, but then we don't know where it goes. And it's a time consuming task to look through high res imagery everywhere. But if you use this low res free imagery, you can see these clusters of activity popping up and you can go back three days before the tanks arrive and see that it wasn't there. That's right. probably one of the most important tools we've right. used at the moment. And again, before we move on, Christian, you've talked about experiences you had previously around, for example, uh, crimes, war crimes in Syria. Have you noticed a change in what OSINT, open source information and intelligence can do for you as the analyst? Because you're going back to the Syria conflict and now you're coming forward to the Ukraine conflict. Have you noticed a change in terms of what's available and the power of open source information? Um, so that's a it's a difficult question because I've never been an OSINT purist, despite, despite having um, jumped on that bandwagon very early because of what I was seeing in Syria. So I was seeing a narrative, like dominant narratives that had nothing to do with what I was seeing on the ground through social media and through OSINT. So I jumped on the bandwagon, but mostly to amplify the amazing work that people like Tom do, uh, that many other famous um, social media OSINT users do, and amplify it through political context. So, but in terms of, so maybe not in terms of techniques, I think the techniques are roughly the same. They've become more sophisticated, slightly more sophisticated. The techniques are roughly the same as I saw in 2014, but the credibility of those tools and techniques has been massively amplified. Right. To show that one analyst can, can change the entire intelligence cycle on a topic as as topical as Russia and the Russian military it just shows how powerful the tool is. And Bellingcat, uh, when they uh, started with uh, three analysts, the power to to prove the use of chemical weapons by the Syrian government against the opposition or against civilians, or the power to prove two years before the the Malaysia Airlines uh, report came out by Dutch investigators, who was responsible for that attack. I think that it's massively amplified the credibility of OSINT as a tool and of OSINT users and of the tools and techniques. And I think that has led to a massive investment. So right. maybe not, maybe the tools remain similar, but uh, the investment has changed. So yeah, that's, that's think tanks and yeah, that's the media have, have built OSINT teams since then. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I like the, the difference there between the fact that much has changed in terms of what's available, but it's being invested in, it's being engaged with properly and, and therefore becoming much more valuable as a result. I'm going to move us on to talk about the specific how, Tom. I'm going to come to you first in terms of asking you to take us on a journey. Um, you've been working, tracking the buildup of the Russians around the Ukrainian border for a considerable period of time, a long time before it became newsworthy anyway. You were tracking it and developing and understanding what's happening. What I'd like you to do for us, uh, Tom, is to describe the techniques, the things that you were using, the open source information that you were using and how you brought that together so that we can begin to really get under the hood here in terms of the power of OSINT. So where have you been? How have you done what you've done? And what are the big, big pluses and indeed challenges you've had to overcome to get there? So as I've said, the main areas that we draw on for our research come from social media and satellite imagery. Now. The thing with both of those is you have to know vaguely what you're looking for to pull anything out of it. So with satellite imagery, you need to understand a general area of where the thing you're looking for is. With social media, you have to figure out what you're looking for because social media is massive and you'll never be able to find it just by glancing through a few websites. So 
for our uh, the project that I run, our focus is very specific. It's on strictly military movement, so we can narrow down that social media collection. And then it's just a case of developing the sort of keywords and the collection techniques to work across multiple social media platforms. And over the three years we've been doing this project, we've managed to develop a fairly extensive methodology for collecting social sources from social media from every available social media platform. And then once we've collected all of that information, it comes down to verification. So that's either collecting more information about a specific location, geolocating and um, time stamping the videos if we can. So figuring out when things were filmed, when things were photographed, exactly where in the world they were photographed. And that allows us to say with a fairly moderate degree of confidence that something happened, even if you're just looking at a single source, you can still say, well, it appears to have been taken in the last three weeks due to the weather and the condition of the trees, for example. And we can say it happened exactly here because you can see that position on software like Google Maps or Yandex Maps, yeah. for example. And then from there, we move into additional validation. So that's using satellite imagery in the attempt to corroborate that. And then adding that extra so what using the fundamental knowledge that we have from Jane. So that is the identifying of equipment, understanding why it might be there, thinking about what units operate that equipment, why they might be there and whether that is an abnormal factor and that really the abnormality and our understanding of the Russian military is what allowed us to twig onto this build up so early on because it was seeing units that were hundreds of kilometers away from their normal training bases and normal training grounds in mid-October that really flagged this to us as something that we're going to need to keep watching and you don't get that understanding by just tuning in when it becomes newsworthy you get that from persistent consistent monitoring yeah and you've been doing this for about two two and a half years did you say uh, on this particular uh, topic yeah two and a half to now, three years i think within that um my understanding is as well that within the imagery that you're seeing the social media imagery particularly you're able to pick out um discerning features of uniforms of emblems on tanks and so on and that that detailed analysis of the imagery as well has been a feature of what you've been doing is that right yeah, it's one of the core parts of our analysis, really. So we have fairly extensive databases of recognition markers for the Russian military, whether that's tactical markings that you paint on your vehicles or insignia that soldiers wear. And that allows us to add that. We're not just guessing when we say what the units are. We can point to verifiable pieces of evidence that we can go back and show you the sources that we have associated it with that unit. So I think that adds a level of confidence to a consumer where we say, if we say this unit is here, we can offer up multiple sources as to why, and we can walk you through that methodology and say, you can see this thing that we've associated with that unit on the vehicle or on the soldier. Right. So you can get a, a, a pretty high confidence insight from these multiple and composite sources. Uh, Christian, I'm going to come to you in just a second in terms of how you might use that in the disinformation uh, environment that you talked about in your in my introduction to you. But before I do that, Sean, as I listen to Tom talking, it sounds reminiscent of days sitting behind a vault door with exquisite capabilities in front of me and trying to bring together the same sort of picture. Does it not strike you how similar that sounded, but albeit from an open source to what we've seen previously in classified sources? I was thinking exactly the same thing, actually, uh, almost exactly. And going back to what Christian said about using the same techniques as we, in, we were in 2014, and I'm not going to go into how, how long I've been doing it, but nothing much changed. But I do wonder if, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know what I'm going to say here about artificial intelligence, machine learning. There has to be a role, and we all talk about it, how much of that actually gets 
used in anger, I don't know, but there has to be a role for those sort of techniques, the algorithms to start sifting through some of the information in a, um, you know, in an automated way that laid, lets the analyst focus on what they should be doing, which is the understanding of what's actually going on. So I do think that that is starting to really pervade now and it's going to have to if we're going to continue to use all the information we need to. Yeah, yeah. Tom, you had a point? Yeah, I was just going to add in there about the artificial intelligence point. I think there's definitely a purpose for it in that magnifying your ability to collect and filter information very quickly. Like you're seeing it now. We've been shown softwares in the past few days even that absolutely dwarf an individual's an individual analyst's capability to collect and still leave them the same amount of time to do all the analysis in the world. So there's definitely yeah. scope for it going yeah, forward. Yeah, I think there is a debate to be had, and I seem to recall we had it last year, Sean, about the the point in the intelligence cycle when intelligence that is artificial stops being useful and needs to be then more human based. But there is unquestionably a phase in the collate organize of the intelligence cycle that intelligence that is artificial can certainly help. Let me um, move us a little bit further down the pipe, um, Christian, coming back to you. I know that you've worked in your previous work around uh, misinformation and the, the disproving of it. Sean, you and I spoke earlier today about some Ukrainian misinformation that has already started to be unraveled by the fact that you can see, for example, that person hasn't lost their leg. It is a prosthetic leg that is uh, on the TV screen. But before we get to those kind of examples, Christian, your own experience, please, in terms of how open source has enabled you to counter uh, narratives that are clearly false. I guess it kind of comes back to what Sean was saying about yelling at the TV. I think I first realized that I wanted to get more involved in OSINT rather than just watch the space in maybe around the time of September 2015 when the Russians actually uh, intervened in Syria. And the narrative was that they were bombing ISIS and they claimed that something like 95% of their targets were ISIS. I can't remember the exact statistics, so please oh, don't uh, right. uh, hold me to that. Right don't worry. They were providing the coordinates. The, the Russian MOD was providing the coordinates of the places they were striking, and 95% of them were rebel, uh, like so Syrian opposition, or civilian targets, bakeries, bridges, hospitals. And then they were primarily targeting uh, the most moderate opposition. So completely ignoring hardline Islamists. Uh, so so their narrative within, I would say, 24 hours to 72 hours was becoming completely unraveled on social media, but wow. not in the media. Uh, and at the time, I actually happened to be a intern at the New York Times uh, office in Paris, the International New York Times. And I remember asking uh, my manager and asking the head editor of the newsroom, I'm pretty sure we should report this. Uh, you know, it's easily proven. Uh, it'll cost us nothing. And, you know, we can be the first to, to crack the story. And I was told, OK, let's wait and see. Uh, let's see what government officials say. Let's see what reporting from the ground tells us, which were the traditional methods of uh, countering disinformation. Uh, but those those can be limited. How much access do reporters have to um, battlefield air, uh, zones? Uh, how much do officials know how much are they willing to say? And it ended up taking approximately, again, don't hold me to it, but I feel like it was three weeks before we reported on it. Right. Uh, and by then, everyone was reporting on it. And we could have done it 
by the second or third day of the Russian intervention. And so in terms of countering disinformation, it immediately became apparent that um, it was the primary tool for doing that. Disinformation is not just one narrative. Sometimes it's a saturation attack, essentially. Right. And with the Trump administration, which I believe is more or less so from 2016, 2017 on. So during the Trump campaign and by the time he was inaugurated in January 2017, with the amount of disinformation coming out of his administration, mostly from the U.S. president himself, the, the media felt the need to react to the amount. But they were left at least for a year without the tools to do so. And I think that. Open source intelligence can allow you to, instead of react to each statement and each uh, disinformation or just misinformation narratives, uh, OSINT allowed you to, to, pen, to cut through that and rather than respond to each claim, you could actually create an image of your own and it was a democratized ability to create that image of your own. Everyone could do it on their own yeah. accord. Yeah. Of course, there's always dangers with that. If everybody is doing it, then it becomes potentially a tool for both sides of the narrative. Sean, you had your hand up a second ago. I'll come to you in just a moment, I promise. And I'm keen to hear your views um, about how else OSINT could be used in a classified environment, how it could be taken across the vault door to help them. But just to sort of put a punctuation mark in the conversation so far, what I've heard in the last 20 minutes or so is a series of examples where open source information has driven an understanding of situation that didn't have to be done in a classified environment because it was available in publicly available sources. However, to do that well, to a high level of assurance, you need to have access to a sure foundation. Tom, you've talked about doing that with Jane's content. There'll be other publicly available and commercially available sources that can be done with. But that composite, that multi-source view that open source gives, that provides context, arguably, with Ukraine. I think it has been providing us with indicators and warnings, which you took, described earlier, Tom, how you do that by having specific detailed understanding and knowledge, as well as intelligence too. And we've also talked about how it might triangulate what might be known in classified environments. I'm interested by your point, um, Christian, in terms of how the media felt obliged to go to the open source environment to start to counter what they saw as misinformation from a political uh, environment. Whatever the incentive, whatever the motivation for getting involved with what's available and exploitable from the open source environment, we're trying here to expose and make clear the power of open source and the fact that it is being used to exploit um, what's available and drive insights is what we're really, really here to talk about. Sean, take yourself back, if I may drag you back there a few years. You're inside the J2 intelligence environment again. What would be different today for you if the J2 environment was as plugged in as we've heard Tom and Christian are with the open source environment? What would be the, the major change for you as the J2 intelligence commander in the joint environment with the power of open source available to you? I think the first element of that is actually a philosophical one, and that is the legitimacy of open source as a uh, means of another intelligence source, if you like. You know, the community is always, um, for good reasons and bad, some of it is which is cultural, and we've talked about this before, it's always shied away from you being open source because, you know, it, it isn't it isn't uh, collated or collected in a certain way. It's not validated in the same way. 
Um, and of course, it, it doesn't cost huge amounts of money and have huge agencies there to actually deliver it. So I think just the fact that it is being now utilised is, is a really important point. That comes with a burden, of course, because you've still got to do your cross-referring, you've got to do your assurance and all the other good things um, that I know you guys do. But, you know, if I was doing it now, what would I what would I be using it for? Validation is is one key thing, you know, making sure that is one of the legitimate sources and it does support not the perceived wisdom, but the actual analysis that's being done. And it can do that by everything that that uh, Tom and Christian have said, because it's all pervasive and you can uh, use multi-source. I think the other thing it can do very well is gap filling. The yeah. intelligence community can't be everywhere all the time. It has to focus on those real priorities. Now, that means inevitably that things aren't going to get covered as much detail as other things. So it can be used in a gap filling capacity. No question about that. And the other thing, going back to the disinformation and misinformation, which are two different things, actually. So yep. misinformation yep. is just wrong. Disinformation is a deliberate attempt to you know, obscure the truth, if you like. Open source intelligence has a major role, I think, in rebutting uh, that disinformation. There's a whole different podcast here on uh, the post-truth world, which we might want to consider in the future. But it's it, it's it's understanding, particularly when things are coming out of the government, who their target audience is and why they're delivering it. I mean, we used to use a targeting world where people used to say, you know, the, the baby milk factory in Iraq, you know, when we could actually see quite clearly on handheld images that it was actually a bunker, you know. So and fast forward that it's a lot more sophisticated now. But the, 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 obviously the Russians are, are mounting a significant disinformation campaign right now that is actually aimed at their own population. And there's a final point there is actually if you go down straight uh, downtown Moscow right now, I would suspect, in fact, I think there's been a, been a, some sort of survey that the great majority of people believe that Ukrainians are attacking separatist or Russian supporting supporting people in the Donbass because that's the narrative. So to be able to counter that, you've got to be able to show evidence in a clear way. Um, now, how that actually gets disseminated is another question, and that's another for another day, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Um, Tom, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to add on a little bit there about the use of OSINT and countering disinformation. I think it's really helped, especially in the mainstream media, because it's removed the ambiguity from especially Russian disinformation campaigns. So maybe five, six years ago, a newspaper would have to say the Russian MOD has stated this thing. But now what we're seeing is, and we see this as a recent example with the Russian drawdown in quotation marks from the Ukrainian border that was announced around two weeks ago. None of the newspapers believe them and they instantly turn to open source intelligence and information to verify those claims and say, well, it's clearly not happening because what you're seeing is more equipment is being moved towards the border. Like It's a real help in that space as well, just to remove that ambiguity completely. Yeah, I, I really like that point. The fact that the, paper, the media aren't even trying to go to the government source and reporting it reluctantly. They're just not having to go there. They're saying, well, that's interesting that you said that because these images are just completely opposite. Christian? Uh, well, I was just going to say that uh, I completely agree. I think that has been uh, like, a, for lack of a better expression, a godsend because truly it was frustrating working in this field and having to see reporting, have to report on uh, official statements whether it was by Russia, the US or the Assad government in Syria, having to report based on claims if they don't have a reporter in the field. 
Right. Um, and instead, now being able to completely ignore those and include those maybe as just an afterthought or to enable uh, the journalist um, or the report to weigh these statements. And the crux of the, the reports tends to be the weighing of facts that they've been able to gather through cross-referencing. And that to me is, is an amazing change in uh, the ability to report on conflict and disinformation. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm going to come to you both in a, just a second to ask you to give me out as the question I always ask at the end. You know, what's the one thing you want your audience to take away in terms of the power of open source intelligence for you and what you've been doing in terms of understanding the current Ukrainian crisis? So what's the one thing you want them to, to hear and, and take away? Before I do that, though, Sean, um, it sounds to me from this conversation and from a conversation we've had in the past that there is an awakening happening about the power and utility of open source, that it is now being taken seriously. The very fact that the media we've just been hearing about are not reaching for the script from the government concerned about what they claim to have happened first. They're going to open public and commercially available sources. Do you see that as a sea change in terms of the attitudes, perhaps in only the media at this stage, but do you see that as a sea change, a coming of age of uh, open source intelligence because of what's happening in Ukraine? I really do, actually. You know, you can't go onto a single news channel uh, or radio channel without some quite deeper and more informed analysis. Now, you know, there is a point there, of course, isn't there? You know, data is agnostic, uh, but the purveyor of that data isn't necessarily. So you have to be objective with the data and consider it all. Uh, and there will be times when that doesn't happen. But actually, generally, certainly in the Western media now, it's it, there is no question this time has been a a sea change in how the open source is being used uh, and for the better, I have to say. Now, I ought to say, just to validate, if nothing else, my last 30 years in the intelligence community, you know, open source cannot be and will never be a total panacea. Sure. That is an additional tool, a very important one, you know, and you've heard me say this before, whereas in the old days, you know, you'd have 80% of, of your intelligence was from exquisite sources and 20% was added on. That is that flip that I've been talking about for the last three years is certainly starting to, to, to come about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I'm going to come to you first, Tom. If you have one thing you want the audience to take away from this podcast in terms of the power of what open source is doing for you to help you understand what the Russians have been doing and are doing in and around Ukraine, what would that one thing be? To be honest with you, I hope that we just take away this sort of methodology that appears to be forming in the news and intelligence conversation space where we have this fusion of open source intelligence news and then official government statements continues because it's clearly a good methodology and it's working well it seems at the moment i just hope we can keep that going uh, over the next x number of years really time. thanks tom yeah. christian i want it to in impact reaction times and the quality and confidence of reactions by government, by NGOs, and by the media. Even even in during this crisis, it took it took a, a few weeks, a good three or four weeks, for the media to get totally on it. And yeah, I just I just love that OSIN is able to give you uh, that reaction time, that very short reaction time, and that confidence to react because you know that your image is quite clear. Uh, it'll never be perfect, but uh, yeah. Yes, I agree. So both Tom and Christian, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. I know you're both uh, very, very busy right now because of the situation in the world, not least in Ukraine. I'll let you get back to your day jobs and thank you for continuing to do that. Sean, thank you as ever for your contribution to this. 
for me, walking away from this conversation, I get a sense of relief that I'm starting to see what I've known to be true, understood by a wider audience. And that is that the open source environment is a very, very rich, not without risk, but very rich environment to go and find out what's happening, get some quote, ground truth, unquote. And the work you've talked about today, Tom and Christian, gives insight, I hope, to the audience that there is real power there. You just need to know how to go and find it, how to use it. Thank you all for your time today, as always. Thank you for listening and uh, look forward to next time. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.